You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. This podcast is sponsored by Zoom to You, Australia's on-demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. You can't see it here, guys, but we have Adam Broadway from Platform OS and he's doing a bit of a shuffle dance right in front of our screen. So uh, welcome to the show, Adam, from beautiful, sunny Silicon Valley. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Mike and Stephen. Yes, I was doing a little bit of a dance because that intro music gets me in the mood. <laughs> it's a little bit cheesy. We might have to change that. <laughs> so uh, getting right, right, right along with it, Adam. So Adam, what, what do you do when you're not uh, busy running your, uh, your fast-growing software business? Well, as you know, Michael, I have six kids. I know you might be thinking, hang on, I thought you only had five, but uh, with the addition of uh, Galileo, who is 19, come joining uh, with combined families, six boys. So it's pretty busy. In fact, I, I have a startup and I run multiple businesses so that I can have a break. No, <laughs> I, I, only, I only hang out uh, at the office because, you know, having six boys um, motivates me to do well in business. But also when I'm out and about with them, it's usually rock climbing or paragliding or doing some sort of adrenaline sport. And you've just come back from Yosemite, I can see. You do notice the shiner that I have. Yeah, that was, a, that was a Yosemite accident. Beautiful part of the world. So um, I guess you just sort of led into my next question, which is about work-life balance. I mean, is there such a thing with a startup? And you sort of mentioned that work is kind of your balance, having six, six boys. But yeah, tell, tell us a bit more about your views on, on work-life balance. Mm, well, work-life balance, it's, I think it's great if you have a risk profile that's more than nine to five taking weekends off and if that's how you want to live life then that's great but i think for entrepreneurs and people building businesses there's no such thing it's work-life harmony so work-life harmony is the new buzzword and uh, what it comes down to is okay i am a workaholic or i'm so laser focused on this business i think about it all the time how can i get some work-life harmony and it's a really tough one because as an entrepreneur and you both probably know being yourself you don't switch off there's no nine to five it's 24 7 you dream about it you worry about it it's it's a baby and you're wanting to nurture that and to bring it up and hopefully it graduates and joins another family maybe if it gets acquired but uh, the problem is that it does impact on family and so being able to take some time off and at least give some respect to try and recalibrate the, the way that we work, like turning off your phone at dinner time, or if you're with friends and family, putting your phone to one side at least for an hour or so, that's where the work-life harmony can exist for me. Maybe it's different for other people, but yeah, I don't see it as a, there's no balance. It's all on all the time. It's com- complete immersion. I um I love that that buzzword. So what was it? Work life harmony. Work life harmony because harmony. there is no balance. It's yeah. like you put everything into the thing that you're addicted to often, and I think as entrepreneurs that whole it becomes it becomes an addiction and a problem. So you've got to work out how you can get some harmony in your life where you give time to those that matter. Because after the business is said and done, I mean, what do you look back on? Everybody at their deathbed said, I wish I worked harder. Not. I said, I wish I, was, wish I spent more time with my friends and family. So I'm, 
I'm consciously trying to switch off my phone when I'm with family, when I'm at the dinner table. At least that gives them a sense of presence. And even if in my mind I'm always on and thinking about things, I've really tried to focus in the moment to spend the time with my loved ones. It's, it's a tough, tough thing. And Adam, you're living in Silicon Valley. You're originally from, uh, from Oz. What, what's it like living in the valley, building a business? How long have you, how long have you been there now? Ten years, yeah. So, just, well, just over ten years. Came over in two thousand and nine. Uh, Bardia Houseman and I started Business Catalyst back in two thousand and four. Uh, prior to that, we both built businesses, uh, both of which had been acquired. Mine in hardware, uh, Bardia's in software. And then when we met, we kicked off Business Catalyst, and Bardia came over and set up the office earlier. It was in two thousand and eight, but by the time two thousand and nine, end of two thousand and nine, we had been acquired by Adobe, and since then, it's gone downhill, I have to say. And I don't know if it was a correlation or causation between me moving here or when, when Bardia moved back to Sydney. But definitely in the last five years, it is gone downhill. And you can read all about that online. Just do a search. Uh, it's an interesting place. I definitely say it was an amazing place. It's still a melting pot of tenacious and driven people from all over the world, all walks of life coming together. Uh, and you said silly con, silly. It can be a bit of a silly con sometimes, and get uh, get you sucked down a pretty slippery slope of distractions. I think that what is awesome about this place is the knowledge pool. Yeah, it's just you could talk to anything about any topic, from AI, machine learning, deep learning, right through to uh, biology and physiology and pharma and all of those things, obviously tech. And yeah, it's a great place, but 10 years, we're moving out. We're going to Colorado. Yeah, right. And do you think it's as important now for like an Aussie startup to think about moving to the Valley or is it not as important as it was sort of 10 years ago? I think it's important to come and meet people but moving permanently no way i don't recommend it for, for this oh, all right let me rephrase why would you come to silicon valley right now number one reason your customers are here if your customers are here absolutely be here and, and get more of them and if they are based specifically in san francisco bay area silicon valley then be here if you're raising money it's also a good place to be particularly for an aussie startup where aussie's focus more on getting real cash flow in their business. And so you come over here and you go, I've got a business model. It's already bootstrapped. We're getting revenue. That's another big tick in the box. But to move here, yeah, I'd say that based on the stats right now, there's more people wanting to move out than there are moving in. Your runway, if you've raised money, will be sucked up in no time at all. Yeah, just because the cost of employing people is so much more expensive there. It's off the charts. Everybody, the rich, the poor, the young, the old, everybody's complaining about it. And the article actually came out yesterday on the 23rd. Um, rich, poor, young and old, they're all unhappy here. Bay Area dissatisfaction is just continuing to get higher. That said, if your customers are here, if you're wanting to raise money, if you want to rub shoulders or throw a stone in any direction from almost anywhere on the peninsula, you will hit a VC. You'll hit a, a private equity person. You'll hit a developer a product manager, a biotech, you'll, you'll hit any one of those people when you can sit down because they celebrate success. They're willing to give so much knowledge away. There's no sense of, oh, sign this NDA or 
suspicion. It's like, hey, the more the better. I'll share you. I'll, I'll tell you what I've learned. I'll connect you with these people. So that's pretty unique yeah, and right. amazing for Aussies. And for someone who's got like a, a very early stage startup and they're wanting to meet sort of VCs and that sort of stuff, like what's what's the best sort of tip in sort of getting started at doing that? Yeah, get customers. Focus on getting your, your customers before you talk to VCs, um, particularly. And so if, you know, you, if you've got to that stage and you've got customers and you're just wanting to meet people in that area? Okay, like- then, then great. There's uh, Sand Hill Road is full of VCs. And if you're just coming over, there's a couple of very specific uh, hotel, restaurants, um, bars off on Silicon Road that between Wednesdays and Saturday nights, you could just sit in there and randomly buy someone a drink and you'll be talking to somebody who you would probably never get through to uh, because their executive assistants block every inquiry through email or through LinkedIn. So being here, rubbing shoulders, going to the events, looking at what's going on on, on Meetup before you come yeah, okay. and teaming up a few meetup events and then going to physical places. That's a great way of approaching, unless you've got someone in the know. It's not what you know, it's who you know and they can do a, a warm intro. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Chris Saad, by the way, who's back in Australia, has a really good blog post. And Chris, g'day, mate, if you're listening. Chris has uh, shared some really good tips on how to connect with VCs around the topic of warm intros. Right, we'll add a link to our website. Um, yeah, that'd be really yeah. good. Excellent. Awesome. And so uh, tell us a little bit about Platform OS and how you got started. Platform OS is a gradual evolution for me uh, personally. Uh, it's platform operating system. We had the, uh, had, we, we started with a thesis, if you like, after Business Catalyst that DevOps in a box would be fantastic and being able to build scalable solutions, marketplaces, commoditize a lot of APIs and integration, uh, but make sure that it was also going to be infrastructure agnostic because we didn't want to tie our technology specifically into AWS or into Google Cloud or Azure. Uh, and so back in the day after Business Catalyst, one of the things I noticed with all the incumbent solutions out there uh, in the e-commerce space, at least like uh, big commerce, Mandware, Volution, One Shopping Cart, uh, Magento, Business Catalyst itself, uh, and then also content management systems, everything from Drupal back down to .NET Nuke, that were architected to be one-to-many solutions. I've got a store, I've got lots of customers. But the marketplace economy, uh, the shift towards many-to-many, the polymorphic models, commoditizing that user experience or developer experience is where I figured that was going to be the next big thing. And actually, it's panning out Gartner's uh, magic quadrant in this area of marketplaces, physical, digital products, people, products, places, projects. It's the burgeoning new way of doing things. So having built Platform OS to power the and future-proof marketplaces is where we started six years ago and met Mike back in those days. And then, uh, yeah, so we, we went from one-to-many architecture to a many-to-many platform, not dissimilar to how Firebase on Google works, only it's, again, it's platform agnostic and it has a lot more functionality, features, and a growing ecosystem of developers. Yeah, awesome. And can, can you give us an idea of the scale of the, the size of the company? Well, we're just little. We're, in terms of people, we're 27. Okay. Just awesome. a small, small staff, same as Business Catalyst. We had 27 staff thereabouts when we got acquired by Adobe. They thought we had hundreds. Uh, the key to our success is through our channel partners, and that uh, that's a, a massive development 
partner network, internet consultants, digital marketing experts, uh, developers, and they're building SaaS products on top of our business. So the, our growth through those channel partners is, is where we're seeing huge success. And Adam, who, who are some of the clients that you work with? Well, one of our best clients was a company called Spacer.com. Uh, if you That's how we met. Back in the day. Back in the day. Thanks for, uh, thanks helped, for helping uh, us get yeah, started. We've helped a lot of startups. <laughs> helped a lot of startups uh, kick off the vault. Uh, another great Aussie startup kicking butt, uh, doing exceptionally well. But some of the big names like Intel, Hallmark, D.B. Schenker, uh, the solution that spark.co.nz went to market with uh, last year called we do which is like uh, TaskRabbit or Airtasker or thumbtack uh, they're built that's built on our platform as well so it's some very large names and we scale from startup all the way up to enterprise yeah awesome and so you built an, an exited uh, business catalyst um tell us like sort of why you why you sold and what, what that process was sort of like cool <laughs> we're going back a few years now. Well, the, the process of building that business, Vardia and I, we back in those days found it very difficult to raise any money. Uh, yeah. We were, uh, you, you'd have to sell your firstborn in Australia to raise money back in those days. And um, obviously, we've had a few of those VCs, hi, you know who you are, reach <laughs> out afterwards going, oh, damn it, we should have done that. Yeah, you should have. Well, we bootstrapped all the way, we didn't raise a cent. Uh, what we did was worked our tails off and built an amazing product with an amazing team. Uh, it was ahead of its ahead of the curve in terms of an all-in-one online SaaS product, content management, email marketing, e-commerce, blogs, forums, customer service tools, all-in-one, but sold through channel partners who white-labeled it. So the hosting back in those days didn't exist for AWS, didn't exist at all. So we built our own hardware infrastructure inside Equinix data centers. Uh, so that was my job. I come from a hardware background, built all of the data center, co-location, uh, all of the replication, the, everything up to, from the, the bare metal to where the .NET stack began. Yeah, right. That's where Bowdy took over. Excellent. So AWS and like things like Microsoft Azure just makes things so much easier these days. It's awesome. Uh, it can make it much easier but also much lazier. And people know they can just... Uh, write less efficient code because it's easier to hide with a, you know, another serverless si uh, CPU it. cycle yeah. that gets paid for. And uh, that, whereas for us, it was dedicated hardware and every CPU cycle counted and it was much more efficient. But uh, yeah, it's incredible now. I, I love AWS. I love Azure. I love Google Cloud. Yeah, awesome. And so... That that process of being acquired, sort of, how long did that take from that sort of first, and how did you, how did that sort of eventuate and happen? It was exciting times. Our strategy was, as I said, through channel partners, digital marketing agencies, web designers, etc., and we were building up a, a pretty loyal following in the, in Australia, New Zealand, and the US market was starting to really grow big, globally. In fact, um, people from all different languages in different countries. And what we would do is we would look for people that were signed up. And at one point, we saw an adobe.com sign up and go through the partner sign up program. It was like, oh, who's this? So we you know, do, the, do the investigation because what we had done was strategically go to events that Adobe were at, like Max, we sponsored that uh, one year. And then we would go to uh, 
and event apart and other web specific places and we'd kind of get chummy with the adobe staff because they were a, a good partnership opportunity for us we didn't think necessarily that we would get acquired but what we had developed was a thing called triangle and triangle was you've got photoshop you've got dreamweaver you've got business catalyst that's all you need so we had a plug-in for dreamweaver right within dreamweaver you could de design and deploy straight to a hosting environment and that was quite unique and it got us on the radar of Adobe. Then they liked our business model. They were moving to subscription eventually. They hadn't gotten Creative Cloud just at that time. And from the phone call to acquisition, it was about nine months. So it was a long due diligence. They'd never bought a, a SaaS business before. And they then wanted to make sure, well, uh, are we all that? And so it was nine months. They're yeah, right. This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace, to find a convenient parking space near your home or office. And, and was it at the beginning of that nine months did you realise you were selling or did you just... No, we, we had some lowball offers during that process, but uh, having a, a business partner like Bardia Houseman who's been through this before, obviously with Start, his previous company had been acquired by LookSmart before the dot-com okay. crash and he was no slouch when it came to being business savvy. Uh, we also got some good advice from, from some people and we were able to introduce competitive tension in the deal. We yeah. did actually legitimately have two other people, one large multinational who was talking about a uh, investment as a uh, seed money, kind of like what Intel does uh, with some tech companies now. So that came on the radar along with some other VCs and in the introduction of that conversation to Adobe, they went, don't sign anything. And suddenly we had a term sheet very quickly from them, heads of agreement document, and uh, they did not want to dilute this or complicate the sale by suddenly having people that uh, were on the cap table. Yeah, right. Awesome. And when you... So competitive tension is the key. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you're thinking about the price, did you guys have like a price in your mind before or did, were you just sort of waiting to see what they were going to offer you? We we were waiting to see what we would be offered. And the multiple at the end was exceptionally good. Uh, I would say that in hindsight, and both Bardia and I you know, over beer will say, yeah, look, we probably could have taken the business to higher heights because often is the case, and we've learned this now, is you look back after the acquisition and a large company to a degree uh, assimilating our business into theirs loses momentum you don't quite have that same level of decision making uh, and autonomy so we do sometimes say well if we hadn't just waited another 12 months and the annual recurring revenue was just going up and up every month and we had a big war chest in the bank and it was pretty cool but who knows who knows what could have happened i think we did very well yeah awesome awesome and so adam why did you decide to do it all over again because i'm a glutton for punishment <laughs> uh, no, I, you know, it's that addiction thing. I've, I feel like I'm nearly 50. I'm 48. Uh, I've got plenty of years and gas in the tank. I also, I've sold, I sold a, a company previously, a hardware business, and I kind of thought that didn't count. And they say a successful entrepreneur can exit three times. So this will be number three. And by exit, it's, uh, who knows, IPO acquisition with a, the right partner, um, but I really wanted to build something that was more developer-focused. And 
that's what Platform OS has become is very much we started as a marketplace-focused platform because if you could build a marketplace on the platform, you could build anything. They're one of the hardest, as you know, you know <laughs> the business model for a marketplace is, is a tough, tough business in and of itself, but technically it's more complex too. You know? Split payments, returns, fraud, uh, logistics of pick, pack, send, return, and then if it's a hired item, getting that back again. Is it just so many complications? So having built that as a commoditized platform, we are we're excited by the next little um, opportunity that's coming along our way in the next couple of years. So I, I just love doing what I do. This will be probably the last one little piece of advice, though, for those who are in the middle of an exit or have just exit. And actually, a couple of companies recently, uh, Omni last year, um, DunSafe also. Uh, I'm an, I was an investor in DunSafe, one of the only investors in DunSafe, which uh, congratulations to them. They just got acquired by a big US multinational. Uh, take some time off, take 12 months off. And when all of those people come knocking at your door saying, hey, have I got an idea for you? I just need a bit of funding. Lock it all away in an index fund or in some way that you can't really touch it for 12 months and sit back and think about what you're going to do next. I would say just wait. There's always going to be opportunities and take a breath and Look back at what you've achieved and spend some time with the family and friends that have put up with all of your crap for the last seven or eight, nine, ten years where you've said, next year's the year or this is the year. This is the, it's always this is the year, right? Um, give them some time. That's, uh, that's, that's very, good, very good advice, I think. Uh, after I, sold, I had my last business acquired and I was back up and running within six months and I was like, yeah, maybe I should have taken that extra six months. Would have been, would have been worthwhile. You and me both. <laughs> so, Adam, um, thanks for helping Spacer get started with uh, the early iterations of Platform OS near me. Um, I'm not sure if it's still called that. Um, but, um, I mean, we, we certainly used your platform because it gave us speed to market. Essentially, it allowed us to um, create an MVP very quickly and cost-effectively. Um, but from your perspective, um, how should founders think about building or buying their software to run their businesses and, and why use a platform like Platform OS? That's a great question. It's one that we get asked a lot, actually, uh, build versus buy. More and more, everything's getting commoditized. You're on a platform somewhere. You're either on an infrastructure platform, infrastructure as a service, so you're locking yourself into AWS potentially if you're using all their API endpoints. Um, if you're using... Uh, the AWS container services or their orchestration tools for deployment, uh, and it's tuned in that way, you're kind of you're locked in. If you're using Google Cloud or something else, now the next layer up is, well, okay, I own all the code. Well, kind of. Yeah, you've got some developers and they choose their flavor of frameworks, but unless you're keeping up to date on the latest frameworks and keeping code fresh, uh, remo removing technical debt, uh, and if those developers go on a backpacking holiday around Scotland and somebody had, comes in to replace them and they look at the code and go, oh, no, I wouldn't have done it this way. Oh, really? Oh, oh, I better change then. Oh, uh, this person's smarter and knows better and the team now needs to do it differently. So you're constantly changing. Uh, platforms and commoditized solutions do give you speed to market, but they can also deal with a lot of the headaches in if they have first platform agnostic 
infrastructure as a service they can deploy anywhere. So you get that level of uh, sophistication. It's great. And also if they're using open source frameworks like GraphQL is just taking the world by storm. The only good thing to come out of Facebook. Uh, Liquid Markup has just gone streets ahead. That's a Shopify open source conditional formatting front end uh, language that is used with HTML. That's the next version of that is amazing. So there's so many good things that you can plug into the front end developers uh, really savvy on. So you can get away with having all your business logic in those front end frameworks, whether it's Node or React or uh, Angular using GraphQL. And, and does it mean that, you know, a, a non-technical co-founder can get started pretty quickly? Do, does that mean they don't need a... I'm asking a bit of a silly question because I am a technical co-founder, but yeah. you know, does it mean that they can get away with not having a technical co-founder? That's a great question. I think when now that DevOps is becoming so easy to manage, uh, usually it would have been that the technical co-founder was doing the coding, making sure the servers were up, putting in all the monitoring, doing all of it, keeping, making sure that the, the, the production environment was never falling over. And with less and, that, less and less of that requirement, I think, you're better off to spend, you could have a, a technical co-founder who is only part-time. You know, you're outsourcing the CTO role to a degree and you've got a good core team of developers who are not necessarily CTOs. They're just really savvy front-end devs who can uh, write API endpoints. So you, I think I would rather, if I had to choose between a CTO as a tech company, a CTO and a great marketer, or a great customer experience manager, I would go with customer experience and marketing because see, you know, technology is just getting easier and easier and easier, more and more commoditized. Yeah, interesting. And so when you, th when you started sort of building out your product, um, how did you sort of figure out sort of what are the functionality and features that you were going to sort of build into it? Customers like Mike, uh, customers like ourselves, we built desks near me on our platforms to make sure that we understood how a two-sided marketplace worked irrespective of the technology. How do you answer the phone? How, uh, how's fraud handled? All of those sorts of things. So being a customer of the product really helped. And then working really closely with the customers themselves, those who are using the platform. So we would get use cases constantly from lots of different people and we were able to distill that down to core functionality that would suit everybody and so we were able to develop frameworks around the marketplace use cases that could be more easily leveraged yeah okay and at what point like sort of how long into the journey did you realize you had product market fit when uh, we started making money and so uh, when people are, are paying a, a monthly fee for the hosting environment and you're keeping the servers up and you're delivering a, a great support that's when we knew we were onto something and especially as more and more inquiries came, we didn't do any paid advertising for a lot of, it's all been organic. And even now it's all organic inbound leads. So we know that the content we've put out and also the, the reputation that we've started to build is resonating and yeah, having revenues is a, is a great validation. Yeah, right. So what, lots of um, time spent on building content for an SEO point of view to generate those leads? Yes, exactly. Yeah, awesome. Um, and so you've come from a, a tech background, I'm, I'm guessing, and sort of how did you sort of l learn that sort of business acumen along the way? And so did you have some really good mentors? 
I have some, had some very good mentors. On the technical journey, uh, my mentor, and if she's listening, hi, Leanne. Leanne Martin, uh, when I was 17, uh, and because I dropped out of school when I was 16, and after dropping out of school, I was uh, left home, left school, went off to do my own thing. And I ended up pushing trolleys at Safeway, became a touch checker as well. I was a, a really good checkout chick at Safeway back in the day. Uh, try doing that out at Lilydale on the Lilydale line and uh, <laughs> <laughs> copying it. At lunchtime, I'd go to the local computer store and that was run by Leanne Martin and Rosemary Martin. And she was an ex Hewlett Packard engineer. And I would go in my lunchtimes, open up an XT, you know, push the little buttons on the side. There's an 8088 processor in there. And there's, what's that? That's RAM. What's that? That's the bus. What's that? That's a hard drive. Hard drive? Wow, that's huge. Five and a quarter inch floppy drives. Learned all of that stuff simply during my lunch breaks. And I ended up getting offered a job with her. And then from there, incredible mentor. That's my technical mentoring. Business Acumen kicked off with the new enterprise incentive scheme. I don't know if you've heard of NEIS, N-E-I-S. Is it still going in Australia? I haven't heard of it. Might have a new name. New enterprise incentive scheme back in the day. Again, I was 18 at this stage, applied, went through, and they taught me you should have a business plan. And this is how uh, you do a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. What's all this stuff? It's not stuff that I learned at school, but... Uh, they definitely taught me and got me on track. And then from there, I started my own business at 18, sold that at 25, and it was just the school of hard knocks. Yeah, so lots of lots of learnings as as and when things didn't go to, go to plan. Yep. Adam, what have been some of those unexpected surprises along the way? Come on, share some of the, the gory details with us. All right, unexpected surprises. Well, uh, there's, there's some there's some positive ones and the, and the positive ones are the ones I'll, I'll focus on first and then I'll throw a couple of real, uh, you, you need to, any entrepreneur needs to think about mental health. But the, the positive ones are just meeting people and building incredibly long-term loyal friendships. Uh, Bardia and myself are like brothers. You know, you go through the foxhole together. Uh, you know, they say never do business with friends or family. Uh, but uh, you know, you meet a business person, and then you gel, and then you can go from that to being family. So that's been an incredibly rich and rewarding thing for me is the people I've met, uh, and the lessons I've learnt, and the support. Uh, one of the darker aspects of building a business, and especially for those who are single founder uh, business owners, it's tough. It's a tough slog. The mental grind. Uh, one of the one of the negatives, um, uh, my wife at the time committed suicide. That's a big, big, big hit. And people, you know, it's a shock, right? It's a hard one to take. Uh, that completely blows you over sideways. And I have to take some of the, you know, people make choices, but it's the environment and the mental health or lack thereof that can push people over the edge. And I, I don't know how much of my disconnectedness contributed to that, but I will take and I will take you know, feel guilty about that for a long, long time. I think that's a deep emotional pain that is not talked about in entrepreneurial circles. There's a lot of mental health problems that go on in Silicon Valley. There's heaps people don't talk about it. So I would encourage people to keep those connections. The, the strong connections with friends and family that matter. And when you're feeling down and almost out, talk to mates, reach out to somebody who might, um, you know, 
be that person in the foxhole for you that can help you. Hey, listeners. Adam was super open with sharing such a deep personal experience, which we honestly weren't expecting. We continue to have a, a further chat here offline, but we've, cut manage, we've decided to cut that from the live version. Mental health is, is super important as a founder. So make sure as you're building your company, you build a strong support network. We really appreciate how open Adam, Adam was in speaking so openly about this. So back to the episode. So you know, there's a large movement to remote work. You spoke a lot about um, people moving away from the valley. What's your view of remote work? And yeah, what, what advice would you have for other founders thinking about it? Well, for me, I love it. It's a big part of our business, our team, uh, and part of the success of our team is based on our ability to build an incredible team and that team being remote workers. So we have uh, our team in Poland, in Romania, in Hungary, our team in the US, and all of them collaborate. We have regular uh, video chat like we're doing now on Zoom, uh, and it's fantastic. But I have to say, the physical connection of being able to meet face-to-face and have a meal and have a chat and, and, and build the team uh, is absolutely critical as well. So as much as I love remote working, I also love having teams that are right shoulder to shoulder because you can whiteboard and get stuff done really quickly. But you can make remote working work. Yeah, and I think being able to have that sort of personal connection where you do meet with them, whether it's every few months and actually having that face-to-face is so valuable and you end up getting Absolutely. so much done during that time period and then you go back and work remote and then you, that continues to work even better. Yeah. Yep, and Did, with video like this now, we're checking in on a daily basis. Uh, I was going to ask, what, what are your favourite tools for remote working other than the, uh, the obvious ones? Yeah, Yeah. so Zoom, we were a big user of Zoom even before it was called Zoom. I think they changed their name back in the day. Uh, we now have our own white-labeled version that we've built uh, inside Platform OS for doing video um, and we use uh, the Twilio API, video API for that. And it's awesome. But Zoom is great. Slack, it's a love-hate relationship with Slack. You know, Slack's going to replace your inbox. Yeah, with 10,000 more inboxes. So um, uh, we, I think for small teams, Slack is great. As we've opened up our Slack channel to be more public, the demands are coming through. I think we're going to move off and use a, a more, uh, use actually our own product for that community management. But between Zoom and Slack, that's what we've found to work exceptionally well. Obviously, the engineers are using GitHub. And so from that perspective, having GitHub projects, uh, we use ClickUp and Figma as well. So ClickUp being an incredibly awesome new project management tool. Uh, Figma being an amazing front-end design templating uh, tool. That's the biggest ones that we've and Platform OS, of course, it's uh, been probably the, the best tool that we've been Absolutely. <laughs> so what's the best piece of advice that you've received along the journey t- so far, Adam? The one that resonates the most was I was flying between Perth and Adelaide back when Australia had won the Ashes. Was it 2006 back then? And um, I was sitting next to Merv Hughes on the plane, I'm name dropping. This is going to be a big name drop thing. So, so you're flying business class then? I was business class, but back in the day, you know, it was like I got upgraded from points. And speaking of, I was flying business class because I was staying in backpacker hostels every time I was doing a road show because we couldn't afford a hotel for me. But I, I got upgraded to business class. Merv's there. This guy next to me kept 
looking over at Merv, turns out that was Ian Botham. So I'm sitting next to Ian Botham. I just I introduced myself. I didn't know it was him. And he said, um, yeah, I'm Ian Botham. I said, oh, yeah. Now, Ian, what's some advice you could give a guy who's building a business? And he said, laser focus. And I remembered that because everybody keeps saying the same thing, laser focus. Don't have five businesses that you're trying to run. Pick one, focus on it, and do your best at that. Because if you're distracted by too many things, you'll just be average at everything. Uh, And being laser focused to be the best at what you want to do, that's not to say that you're going to not do something else later. But right now, where is your focus? Laser focus. That's great advice. So what's next for Platform OS? What, uh, what's your big vision um, for your business in the next five years? Oh, that's a good one because we are revamping our brand. We did an upside down business building exercise with Platform OS. We built the tech first, then documentation. Our documentation won an award from the UK Technical Writers uh, Organization just last year. And our marketing, we have not really done. Our website is only just being updated after four years. So we're about to go mainstream in that we're taking off the covers. We're going to be doing campaigns and reaching out to digital marketing agencies, internet consultants, developers. Uh, We already have a core group of developers around the world. They're building on our platform. They're building SaaS products, enterprise software, all sorts of things. So now as of Q2 this year, we're really ramping up our development, uh, our marketing to developers. And as a multi-cloud solution, we expect that our growth is really going to ramp up to the point where maybe IPO could be on the cards for us. We'll see in two years, but our trajectory could give us that. And if we don't, it doesn't matter. But we just want to build a massive ecosystem of, of channel partners. Yeah, That's awesome. the goal. Awesome. And, and, and thinking about sort of IPO, what, what do you think are the key things that you need to think about to be able to make get to that sort of stage? Is it sort of seeing that sort of large level amounts of growth or what are you sort of thinking about? Yeah, it's good. It's really low cost of goods, good margins and over 100,000 annual recurring revenue. So the uh, 100,000, 100 million is what I meant to say. So you want 100 million ARR and uh, you want to make sure there's a good margin in your cost of goods. So as a, as a product that's reliant on channel partners without needing a lot of overhead on each of the sales that we do, that's something very achievable for us. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank, thanks, Adam. I really appreciate all the time and all the things that you've shared and being so open and honest in, in sharing that. I'm sure so many founders are going to value listening uh, to this this episode. So thanks so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Steve and Michael. And anybody who wants to reach out on LinkedIn and connect, uh, feel free. Happy to chat. Excellent. Well, thanks, thanks, Adam. Thanks. And that's all for Founders On Air. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.